Are you a member of an extreme right-wing group or even a domestic terrorist? Well, if you're a practicing Catholic or even a parent, the FBI thinks you are. In this episode of the Edify podcast, Kyle Serafin unpacks his experience as a whistleblower and eventually being kicked out of the FBI for it, and why all of us need to be bold and courageous in this new year. Kyle Serafin, welcome to the Edify podcast. It's terrific to have you. It's terrific to be here, too. I want to start with your career at the FBI. Now, when I, I got recruited for the FBI when I was in law school, when I was graduating, uh, and I was told by the agent, the supervisor agent who came to our law school to recruit, that they actually liked to recruit Catholics from Catholic institutions because they understood the hierarchical structure of the organization and tended to be good at following rules and regulations and that sort of thing. How did you encounter the FBI initially? Uh, were you drawn to it because of the fact that you were a Catholic and you liked the structure? I don't know that that was the case, although I do have a real strong sense of right and wrong. I do have a real strong sense of purpose and mission. Um, I was drawn to it because I had served in the military. I, basically, I was 26 years old, like many young men in this country that were uh, growing up. I, I was born in the 80s, beginning of the 80s. And, and I looked around and I went like, what is my purpose? Like, What am I doing here? Uh, mm. I'm not married. There's a war going on. And I feel like I'm not contributing to this country in a meaningful way. I went to a Jesuit high school whose motto was men for others. And so the idea that we would go out there and be men for others kind of is a mission of servitude. Right. But how do you serve? I ran a restaurant. I was a sales guy. You know, I worked in all these kind of like random jobs. And at 26, I finally decided that being a corporate finance guy for a movie studio was not really the jam that I, I kind of imagined myself retiring from. And I thought there's got to be more to it. I've got to either destroy something or create something with my time. And uh, I chose destroy because I was kind of an aggressive, um, you know, angry physical guy. And so I went and joined the, the U.S. military. I joined the United States Air Force. I had a SEAL contract that I didn't take on. I ended up going to the Air Force Special Operations Program. And when I got out of that, I looked around. And I was like, okay, I'm an air traffic controller. I'm a combat diver. I, I have a, a, a card to be a paramedic. I'm licensed in, you know, in, the, uh, in the paramedic world. And so what do you do with all those skills? Maybe law enforcement is the right move for me. So I actually applied to a bunch of different government agencies, State Department, CIA, and FBI was one of them. And, and I'd always had the FBI in the back of my mind is maybe this was a, a cool place that I could go. Maybe these are like-minded type people. I didn't know that they specifically recruited Catholics, but that probably explains why there's so many Catholics that work for the FBI. Right. Well, isn't it, it's like the, the FBI is supposed to be like the Catholic agency and the CIA is the Protestant agency, or at least that's how it used to sort of, the short there's a huge, yeah, there's a huge chunk of Mormons that are in there. They call them the Mormon mafia. And like, unironically, they think it's funny, but there's actually, and, and there's a reason why. People at FBI that are, or at CIA? At FBI, right? At both. At both. Okay. And the reason is this, um, I think Catholics sort of appreciate that hierarchical structure. They appreciate, they have a, you know, kind of a, an emphasis on education and trying to stay out of trouble. Maybe that's probably part of it. So if you've done the right thing, most of your life, getting a security clearance is easier. That helps. You don't have any felony convictions and you can actually go and get that job once they've actually found you. Uh, the Mormon thing is that they tend to have languages. They tend to do self-contained sort of human pod family situation where they pick up and you got three kids and a wife who's used to being put on a mission trip or something. And they go with that and they send them wherever in the world and they do really well. So CIA does that as well. For whatever reason, there's a fair number. I think probably 30% of the FBI is Catholic, maybe even higher than that. It's very, very high. Yeah. And, and largely practicing Catholic too, which I just find very interesting that that those were the kind of students they were looking for, at least, you know, at the time I was recruited. And, uh, I was deterred by the six minute mile requirement, which apparently would not have deterred someone like you. But yeah, I don't me, know if they have a, like, it's eh. not six minutes anymore, but yeah, there, there is a well, physical it used requirement. To be. And I'm like, oh boy, that's, that sounds like too much work. Where did you go to college then? 
So I had uh, many options in front of me that I couldn't afford or pay for because I got into a kind of a, one of those classic uh, adolescent spats with my folks. And uh, and I kind of went to a place as a rebellion. I got a full scholarship to go to the University of Oklahoma, who had a program for national merit scholars that waived all tuition and gave you in-state tuition for life and a stipend. It was really a great deal. And so it was right up the road, just a couple hours up the road from me. Um, one of my, you know, a lot of my friends ended up getting uh, scholarships and went to private colleges. And I went to a state school, which may not have been the best choice at the time, but you can't pick your life path and it's worked right. out okay. It's kind of a funny place. So you went from there to the military? No, I went from there and uh, I graduated an extra year. It took me an extra year. I'm like one of the stupid smart people that my friend Dan Bongino talks about, where I just didn't pay attention, didn't learn those life lessons, probably should have been in the military earlier. And so I ended up getting out of college with a little bit of debt, taking a job in San Francisco. That didn't work. I moved back to Austin. I sold computers for Dell. I moved up to Kansas City and I ran a restaurant. Then I moved out to San Diego where I was homeless for a couple of months and tried to figure out what my life was about. Ended up catching a job at Warner Brothers. And that's when I had this revelation like, hey, you can't keep doing this. This is not a safe mm. life path. You got to figure out right. some discipline. So I took an 80% pay cut to go into the military at the age of 27. I was the oldest guy in my basic training flight. And I went in there and I said, what is basically the hardest thing that I can do? What is the most difficult path that I can find? And then also it turns out that I was you know, surrounded by a bunch of 17, 18 and 19 year olds, which is also difficult at 27. And took on a lot of humility, actually, though. I think in a lot of ways, being around people, being a guy who used to make money, who now makes no money, who is answering to people who are younger than them. Many of my officers were in their early 20s, just got out of academies or ROTC programs. And so that was actually probably the best thing that ever happened. And it mm. it forged the way for the rest of my life. Well, you know, God writes straight with crooked lines, as the saying goes. So mm -hmm. it sounds like um, the Lord gave you a wealth of different experiences, you know, when and when you're in your 30s or 40s and look back on that, you thank God for those moments because they do give you insight into other people and other experiences that you might not have, you know. And so um, so those things, when you use them the right way, can be gifts. Um, are you from a big family, are you from a practicing Catholic family? We are, although none of my siblings, I have at least one brother who has a degree in theology from a Jesuit school and he's an atheist. So that's sad. I got another one who's got a law degree from Loyola Marymount. And uh, as far as I know, he doesn't practice any religion either. So that's sad. I've got another sister who doesn't either, but uh, my wife and I took it on. This is kind of an interesting story. So I come from, a, I have um, four brothers and one sister. So a good Catholic family. Uh, my folks still practice. They, all my children were baptized in the church where my, uh, my parents are members of the parish. And Interestingly enough, like many Catholics probably at a younger age, I, I kind of walked away. Like I just didn't see the value in being at church and it didn't mean anything to me. And I didn't have, I think when you're a parent, you, you actually get a reason why. And I had this sort of moment that I think a lot of Catholics may have um, in the same way where they go, I'm the person that I am because of the life experiences that forged me and because of the opportunities they had to learn what was right and wrong, to have a moral compass. And so my wife and I made a conscious decision. My wife was raised without religion whatsoever. Mm. Uh, father is an atheist. Um, I, I jokingly say he's a communist, but he actually thinks that people shouldn't own property. So he's kind of actually a communist and we, uh, and she, she comes from New York. So she came from the opposite side of the world. She grew up in Brooklyn. And at some point in 2020, she said, or maybe 2019, we were living in Virginia outside of DC working for the FBI. And we had a, I think we had two very, very small children, uh, you know, two, two and one kind of deal. And she said, we should be going to church. Don't you think? And, and I went, yeah, if you're, she wow. drove it, she drove it. She had a need for that. She yeah. grew up in a uh, tradition that didn't have it. And she said, you know, you always had that. And what's fun is the reason why I actually know my wife, which kind of ties in sort of like the way my life has gone. My wife, she was in New York and she wanted nothing to do with New York. She was miserable. She was sad. Like so many young people in these urban areas that are very leftist. She right. just didn't know what was right. So she right. ended up going down to Texas, went to the university of Texas and started hanging out with all of my friends from high school 
Wow. While she was in college and I didn't know her down there and I didn't meet her until about 10 years later. And so when we met, we had known the same people for over a decade. Wow. We had instant history right away the first night that we met. Oh, that's, that's, I love stories like that, you know, because you can, like I said, you can see God's hand working in it, even though at the time it didn't, it didn't make any sense. I'd like to switch now to the reason I guess most of us know you now, which is your whistleblower role within the FBI when you learned of the targeted surveillance of American Catholics. You know, you're doing this, you're deciding to be the whistleblower. That was a massive risk, you know, to your career to your family's well-being, I would guess, um, to your personal life, but you still made the decision to do it. Can you describe the moment when it crystallized for you? I I have to speak out about this. Yeah, it's 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 actually like so many journeys. I think it's incremental. It's it's not nearly as sudden and abrupt. Right. Although people sort you know saw me on Tucker Carlson, it's so not like, like oh, a light bulb light bulb moment kind of correct. thing. Correct. I've yeah. always had a very strong sense of what I think is right and wrong. I have a strong sense of I don't like bullies. I don't like uh, injustice. That's probably why I joined the FBI, although that's sort of misguided at this point. Um, And so I joined the FBI in 2016. In 2017, I immediately saw the things that I was doing in the counterintelligence program were problematic. And some of them I felt like were violations of federal law. And I reported those things the way that you would if you're a guy who's been in the military, which is to say, you go through a chain of command. You say, hey, boss, this looks wrong. Hey, supervisor of the boss, this looks wrong. And so I started doing some things like that about FISA 702, which is a very specific type of surveillance being done in the national security realm. I started kind of, those are actually technically considered whistleblowing activities to go through your chain of command is a whistleblowing act. Um, I went and I reported that my boss was violating employment practices and she was actually discriminating against veterans. She didn't understand what veteran preference meant. So some of these small actions were kind of priming me for the big one that happened later. Right. Um, I worked on a surveillance team. I asked to get out of that. I didn't want to be part of the mission. I thought it was wrong. I thought it was sort of, if not immoral, it was certainly not what I was called can, to do. Can you say who you were surveilling or is that not something you can discuss? Well, I worked on a, uh, yeah. So first of all, I went from a Chinese counterintelligence program that theoretically was looking at Chinese spies that were overseas, but we were trying to find the Americans that they were dealing with. That was part of the gig. Um, most of them were actually doing things that were unclassified and not breaking any laws. So that's really weird for me because you think that you're going to be doing federal law enforcement. I got onto the surveillance team and our primary mission funding came from the counterterrorism division, which okay. meant that we, my first, first mission set was uh, two weeks into the team. We got sent to Alaska to watch a so-called white supremacist, which we can talk about because obviously that has to do with what they claimed the Catholics were. And, and what I found was, is that the, uh, the counterterrorism mission that the FBI has done has creeped dramatically since 9-11. Most people have this idea that we were watching foreign terrorists and we started doing that. And then we went to looking for local terrorists that were with a foreign ideology. Those are known as homegrown violent extremists. So that's, imagine someone who's a first generation American of Somali descent in Minneapolis that has like an ISIS or an Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda ideology. Yep. So that's what we watched. And that's okay, okay, I guess. But once you're looking at the people that are inside the United States already, they started expanding the mission to what we call domestic violent extremism, domestic terrorism. And those things tend to be your classical sort of like Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists, and they call them militia violent extremists. I just call them military veterans. So that's kind of dark for me. There's a couple of other things, the, uh, the people that are like, environmental extremists and so on. So we watched a lot of different terrorist type missions, but I also did, you know, MS-13 and, you know, white collar fraud and everything else. Were there pro-life groups considered part of that domestic terrorism? Not at that time. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know they got there. Did it. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Interestingly enough, I mean, I got myself in a position where I was able to see what the national priorities were for counterterrorism, which was, like I said, that was the primary funding group for our surveillance team, which went all over the country. I did at least 22 week deployments around to other field offices, plus the stuff we did in our own. And so I started 
making calls to the office of the general counsel. And I had a lawyer draft a letter doing what I would call whistleblower activity at this point, knowing what it is, saying, hey, we're doing some things wrong. We're not even handling our own billing correctly. We're not billing our hours correctly. We're not attributing them correctly. And so some of that stuff was all, these were all priming me to when I eventually got myself out of Washington, D.C., which was my end goal. And I thought I was going to go to Shelby, Montana, which is the middle of nowhere. And I was going to work on an Indian reservation and nobody would ever hear from me again. That was my goal. Uh, you know how, how it was. God lasts when we make our plans. And it, instead, I got a transfer to Las Cruces, New Mexico, which I applied for. It was a voluntary transfer and we got it. And so I thought, OK, fine. Well, it wasn't the northern border. It's the southern border, but it's also in the middle of nowhere. And my boss came to me and said, you got two options, public corruption or Indian reservation. What do you want? And I said, Indian reservation, 100 percent, which nope, nobody wants to do that. And I did that for a couple of months. And well, while who I'm there, be, who, sorry for interrupting, but wh why would one need to sur uh, surveil a, an Indian reservation? Is well, there... it's a different mission set. So I was actually doing criminal investigations. Imagine a, a detective on a major case squad. That's what the FBI does for Indian reservations. Got Local it. crime is handled by the federal, either tribal police. Or, right. Yep. They're federal, they're federal land. Of course. Okay. Exactly. That makes sense. So then. murder, sexual assault, um, major theft that would go and it would fall either to crimes. the, yeah, exactly. So okay. that's what I did. Okay. So, all right. So you're in Indian territory and. And I'm doing something unrelated to politics. I thought. Okay. <laughs> that was and? the hope. And I get a guy who's standing in my, in the hallway and he says, Hey, did you see this email? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So probably not. He ends up forwarding me this email that many people are now familiar with, which is that the FBI created a program under the counterterrorism division, but also co-signed by the counter, the criminal investigation division that okay. said they were going to be targeting parents at school board meetings. And so your I'm friend sent you this, your coworker sent you this because he or she was concerned about it or because, exactly. you know, okay. So just a, someone who knew was, was like-minded. Yeah. It he to was a supervisor and, and he just said, this is, you know, this, this is BS. Is kind of why crazy. are we doing yeah. this? Yeah. Why are we doing this? Okay. Got it. All right. Well, I saw that as an immediate problem along with some other things. At that point in time, I was not only working on the Indian reservation, but I'd been assigned to do investigations on the two different military bases, which were full of Afghan refugees. So 10,000 of them at Holloman Air Force Base near White Sands Missile Range and another 10,000 at Fort Bliss. So I'm seeing all this stuff and I'm like, the FBI is a mess. <laughs> There's a lot of things. And I, I thought I was going to get away from all this stuff, but instead all you do is when you start looking for problems, you find them. And, and who would have authorized this surveillance of people at school board meetings of parents? This was the assistant director of counterterrorism, okay. but it was actually being sent out um, on their behalf by a guy named Carlton Peoples, who was actually a, uh, he was an acting, I think, acting deputy director from the inspection division. Kind of interesting. He's also like now in charge of a field office. So he's been promoted a couple of times, but he wrote this letter basically saying that we were going to create this threat tag. The problem that I saw was that the attorney general had just said five days earlier in front of Congress that we were not going to be using counterterrorism resources to go after parents at school board meetings. And sure enough, we have an EDU officials threat tag. It's like a hashtag that tags Intel. And it said exactly that we were going to do investigations and we we're going to tag them into parents at school boards. So that was a problem to me. It felt like perjury. It sounded yeah. like perjury. And when you're a whistleblower, you don't have to be right. You just have to be reasonable. And I had a reasonable belief that was the case. So I brought that to my member of Congress. That actually got me kicked out of the FBI in many ways. So that was even before the Catholic document. So for people to understand, at the same time that was happening, and this is how you always see, like you said, God's plan is in the rearview mirror. It's never in front of us when we're going. The exact same time, a few things happened. Number one, my wife was going through RCIA. And she was converting to Catholicism from, from no faith at all. And so she was, you know, I guess she was a Catholic at that point. Even the priest would say that, you know, she hadn't been baptized, but that was the goal. So she's working through that. Um, I'm seeing this wrongdoing. And then at the same time, we got the Biden administration saying that everyone is going to get a COVID vaccine in federal service. 
Mm. It was Executive Order 14043 that stated all on-duty you know, personnel for the entire federal government would have to do this. And I had some real serious concerns about the, the fetal cell lines that were used. And I also had some medical concerns. But the religious objection I raised was specifically, I'm a pro-life Catholic and I'm not doing that, period. Mm -hmm. Pro-life and Catholic should be the same thing, but apparently they're not. Right. We're right. finding out in some places like Ohio. So I, I make this claim and uh, and I put that in an affidavit. I wrote up a three-page affidavit of my beliefs. I had it signed by a notary public and I submitted it to the FBI and I never heard from him again, but that put me on the list. The second thing I did was five weeks later or three weeks later, I ended up going to this member of Congress with the thing saying we're investigating parents, but specifically that the attorney general appeared to have lied. That's my problem. Right. They kicked me out of the office on the 23rd of November, the day before Thanksgiving in okay. 2021, and put me on unpaid leave basically until March of the next year. So you were called in by your supervisor, presumably, and yep. told you're being placed on leave. Was any reason given? Uh, they said they, because what they said was if you're not going to get the COVID shots, then you must test for COVID every 72 hours. Okay. And I found that to be, and here's something that's kind of interesting. Every single member of the FBI that is a, a federal agent, every badge and gun carrying FBI agent goes to this trip to the United States uh, Holocaust Museum. It's the Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC. And it's a really impactful trip for those of us who took the message to heart. All they said was the only way that the Holocaust happens is for local, federal, state officials and small government officials to say yes when they should say no. When they do the thing that they know is wrong, that's illegal, right. immoral, or unethical, and they don't stand up and say, I'm not going to do that. And so the fact that uh, I was being asked to test for COVID to me told me that they were identifying because we had to put it on our timesheets and mm. everybody that was testing for COVID was saying that they had a religious exemption. So now you're forcing people to identify in their religion in a theoretically at a, an organization that has no business knowing that. And I have to put it on my timesheet and my boss yeah. knows and their, you know, and their secretaries knows and all this kind of thing. So I said, I've got a real problem with that. You might as well just put a, like a yellow star on our arm. You're actually right. trying to make us identify ourselves in a way that I think is it, it, unnecessary. Yeah. And I think it violates title seven. So I said, I wasn't going to test. And they said, you can't come back into the office. And I said, that's fine. So they kicked me out of the office because I refused to comply with what I thought was tyrannical instructions. And, and that was probably the, the moment when I'm like, I'm probably not going to have this job very much longer. And that's okay. My wife and I had the discussion. I said, there's going to be some real consequences. Obviously we'll have no income. We'll have no uh, house. We'll have to sell that. I don't know what happens next. And she said, it's okay. Interestingly enough, on my wife's 40th birthday, which was on March 4th of that year of 2022, I got to go back to the office because they changed the COVID rules and they arbitrarily made them no longer necessary for me to test. They just made it up as they went. So I go back to work. I'm there for six weeks. And while I'm there, I end up having some other kind of nonsense. They basically assigned me no cases for six straight weeks, put me in a corner. Literally, I was in the corner of the office by myself. And then uh, on, uh, in April, they pulled me into a conference room and took my badge and my gun. Coincidentally, it was the uh, it was the week after Easter where my wife was baptized. Received into the church, yeah. So she was baptized at the midnight mass uh, going into Easter, and uh, I go in the next week, and uh, my badge and my gun are taken, and we sort of went, okay, now comes the next part. And that got very strange. So while I was on this unpaid suspension, the, the bureau took my badge, my gun, and then eventually my security okay. clearance and my so, paycheck. But you're still, not, you're still an FBI agent. You just don't According have the authority to, to act as one because Correct. you have no badge, you have no gun, you have... So your authority is stripped, but you still have, technically you still have the job. Allegedly. Yeah. Okay. That ended up going on for a year. So anybody's going to have to basically put it in their heart. Have you ever worked for a job where you haven't been paid and you have no, you have no ability to say that you work there, but you have the responsibility to do what they tell you, even though they're not paying you. That's a weird thing to be in. So yeah. Yeah, only in the federal government would they come up with that. So, so that happens. I had the badge and the gun removed and then I'm sitting on this unpaid leave status. And during that time, I 
am exposing more whistleblower stuff. I'm bringing more things to Congress. I brought up a thing that showed that they were considering people called militia violent extremists to be um, a problem. These are basically basically people who have like the Betsy Ross flag or, you know, right. in the Gadsden flag, that kind of thing. I exposed that. I exposed a couple of other things about election fraud. And someone came to me from inside the bureau and they said, basically, like, you, you've already lost your job. You're not going to be working for the FBI anymore. And you know that. And I said, yes, I do. And they said, I just saw this intelligence product on the Intel hub. And it shows that the FBI is investigating Catholics. And now this person was not a Catholic, hmm. but they said, this is a real problem. This is going to be a pry bar into getting into Christians in general, because right. if you can carve off one set of a, of a denomination of Christianity, you can go after any of them once you start articulating it. Right. And okay. that's when I brought that forward. So it's a long story to get there. Like I say, it's, it's kind of like a lot of things you see where you don't know what you're doing until you do it. And then you go like, of course. This right. Is well, it you know, it, it's actually helpful. I think it seems a little convoluted, but to me, it says that A, there was a pattern of this, right? And that B, this wasn't a one-off. I mean, you had substantial experience with all sorts of groups being targeted um, that you could substantiate with you know, memos and evidence, et cetera, et cetera. So it does, to me, it shows a pattern. Um, so I, to me, I think it's less um, you know, influential or impressive if you just found the Catholic memo one day, because then it's easily explained away yeah. as it was one rogue agent, right? Which is what we were told. One rogue agent who is anti-Catholic. And so- Who went to um, Georgetown, by the way. Did he? Yeah. It's, it's, sad. <laughs> it's always sad when our own turn against us, isn't it? I, I, mean, I find that so if, discouraging. If you read the document, you can see too, that that person had an inside understanding of church politics in a way that many well, people would not. And okay, that's so that's what I want to get to because- Let me, let me throw yeah, one more piece ahead. on there because the last yeah. thing I did before I got removed from the office, when I went to my member of Congress, one of the other things that I exposed, because you alluded to this earlier, was the fact that pro-life groups were being targeted by the FBI for investigations, not in a criminal way. Now, people have to understand that there are two basic uh, versions of the FBI's investigation. One of them is criminal, and that's what you think of as a classic, you know, someone does a crime, we investigate who done it, and then we find out and then we prosecute. A- an intelligence investigation, which is what I started my career doing, is sort of circular. They don't really have a beginning and an end. There's no real goal. And what I found out was is that national security agents from the squad that I eventually sat in the corner with were going down to Anthony, Tex- uh, Anthony New Mexico, this tiny little nowhere town that had the one of two abortion clinics in the entire state of New Mexico. And they were interviewing Catholic women who were running an ultrasound machine in a trailer trying to talk women out of getting abortions as a potential threat to national security, which is absurd. And then I found out why when I got put on the squad, which is that it was the number three threat to national security in the counterterrorism realm by the FBI in that state. So the Albuquerque division determined that pro-life Catholics and people that were protesting against abortion in peaceful ways might be a national security threat simply because of the heartbeat bill that had been passed in Texas. And all that stuff is off the rails for me. I mean, everything about that is wrong. And I reported it to Congress as well. So that all kind of feeds into what you're going to get into. There. Right. Well, I mean, when you look at the people, like, for example, you know, you have volunteer people who have these ultrasound vans, which is a great idea, just trying to provide women with additional information about what's going to happen when they go and have that abortion and then provide them with alternatives if they, if they choose to have it. And that, you know, anything that gets in the way of the abortion industry's money somehow becomes a national security threat, which is infuriating on many levels. But at any rate, so I, um, I worked for the Catholic church for 28 years. And so I am very familiar. I worked in the chancellor's office. I was the vice chancellor. So I'm familiar with the different levels of Latin mass goers. Let me put it to you that way. And some Mm -hmm. are, some belong to communities that are in union with Rome and some do not. And it seems to me that 
if I recall correctly, that memo was targeting, it's pretty granular in terms of the Latin mass community that it was targeting. Very. So it had to be somebody um, either who had a family member who worked for the church. I was trying, you know, because you could stop about 90% of Catholics and ask them if they, you know, know what a Lefebvreite is, if they know what it means to be in schism, et cetera, et cetera. And they wouldn't know what the heck you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And yet yeah, that is... Um, what the FBI was targeting, which, I mean, they're a subset of the Latin mass community at best, right? Their canonical status is a little bit murky. Um, you know, it's, I guess it, they are, they do have valid sacraments, but you, you know, there has to be qualifications for a practicing Catholic to be able to avail yourself of those. Um, why do you think this particular group was singled out? Um, and I, 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 I just, I'm baffled again by the level of specificity that was present in in that investigation. So first you have to understand that the person who wrote it was an intelligence analyst, and that's a specific type of person in the world. Intelligence, intelligence analysts are essentially grad students that are on the payroll of the intelligence community that write term papers that are very academic in nature. So that that already tells you what kind of human being is going to be doing it. I, I always break it down if you're going to be really, really uh, just sort of crude about it. It's indoor dogs and outdoor dogs. Intel people tend to be indoor dogs. There are some that are outdoor because they are what we call tactical intelligence, but the general indoor term paper writing intel people are a very specific breed of people, and they're very interested in granular details. Okay. Um, I think there are two there are two factors that are at play here. You had someone that had a real problem with a fragment of this Latin mass going population, and they they made that known, and they were able to couch it in ways that would make it sound like it was a legitimate national security threat because it's novel. The, when you are an intel person, your bones are made by opening up new avenues of uh, what we would call the threat landscape. By being able to identify a new threat, that's actually a big deal for you. It's like discovering okay. a new species. So if you could put yourself on the map by knowing a new threat landscape, it's like, oh, we're not just looking at uh, people that are international terrorists. Now we're looking at homegrown violent extremists. You've now identified a new set of problems and you can dig into that and explore it and research it and write about it. And you can really build a body of work and that can set you apart from your colleagues for promotions and for accolades and so on. So that's part one. But the weird thing, and I think this is a little bit more, I think this is the nefarious nature of bureaucracy. They were able to take this person's knowledge and it's a, it's a male Intel analyst. Uh, one of my friends sat next, I don't want to say his name or anything, but uh, I know people that sit next to him at, at work. So I, I've got some pretty good knowledge about what goes on. That's the nice thing about having a source network that I do. And what we know is, is I think he probably had some particular problems with church politics that he was basically expressing at work and using that knowledge base in a weaponized fashion. That's dangerous. The second thing is, is when someone sees that from the outside, a supervisory intelligence analyst or somebody that has an ideology to grind, because they're going to help guide this. What they saw was an opportunity to carve off a fringe group of Catholics. We'll call it what it is. It's fringe group and not necessarily um, as human beings, but they their ideology is a little bit more fringe. And you can say, look at this problem here. And what they said was that's so problematic is that this fringe group is most likely to be receptive to white supremacy recruitment. And why are they receptive? And this is where this document becomes very problematic for me. It's problematic because they're receptive because they have traditional views on pro-life stances, like they don't like abortion. They have traditional views about immigration, and they don't want you to be able to come in and be a uh, you know an illegal immigrant in this country. They don't like gay marriage, or they don't like any of the things that are basically mainstream Christian, not even just Catholic, but Christian positions. And so what they've done is they've said, look at these fringe people. They have all these bad beliefs. They could be recruited by white supremacists. 
And then you say, well, who else has those beliefs that might be recruited? Oh, it's all Catholics. Oh, it's all Christians. Oh, it's actually all lowercase c conservatives pretty much hold this. So when you're right. looking at a way to carve off a group, make them part of the threat landscape, and you could export, you know, expand upon that and make it 50% of the country, which is what we've seen the Biden administration do, saying that there's a you know so-called MAGA extremists. I mean, anybody who voted for Donald Trump is now an extremist. That's a crazy position. But you have to start small in order to build that sort of like a seed crystal. There has to be an initial crystal to build off. And I think that's what this was, honestly. Yeah. And I, you know, and it probably, uh, if I'm picking up uh, what you're saying about this particular analyst, um, my guess is he didn't even know this group existed until he started Googling and then discovers that they exist and thinks he's come on to something now that's, you know, nefarious and strange. And again, if you, you know, if you know the world and you have to deal with, so, I mean, and the canonical background for it is complicated. I mean, you know, they have, it's kind of hard to explain to somebody what valid but illicit means in terms of sacraments and, mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, and, you know, we have a fairly significant uh, community of them in the Chicago area. So I know them and they're often mistaken for us for Roman Catholics when they're not, um, because they're not in union with Rome. But at, at any rate, it, um, and sometimes people wander in there unknowing, you know, the status of the place, right? So they're just thinking they want to go to a more traditional mass and they don't realize that they're, that they're in a place that, you know, has valid but illicit sacraments, right? So, and none of that has anything to do with the FBI's mission. It turns out that's the real scary part. It's like that you and I could have a canonical discussion about it and decide, and I, we could feel different ways about it. And it wouldn't matter two ways at all for the American public in general. It's, you know, people who are basically, you know, splitting hairs on some minutia of, of interest to us. And it has nothing to do with what the FBI should be involved in, right. which is none of this stuff. They need to be agnostic about religion. Yeah, exactly. And um, so you, you find this, this is really the bombshell that you found. You find it. And then what did you do next? Did you go back to that particular member of Congress who'd you, who you'd been dealing with previously? I, I actually went directly to Jim Jordan's office. I have a contact there now. We had, we basically had developed a pipeline of being able to share information with them. And, uh, and there is, there is, I'm trying to think of where that was exposed. So that was exposed initially on uncoverddc.com in uh, in February. The, the the Intel product was written in January. I actually wrote the original piece on it. So what I did is I said, look, I'm I'm already out of the FBI at this point. Right. Like they can consider me an employee, but they haven't paid me in six months plus. And I've gone public and told my story to Dan Bongino and I've gone on Fox News and I've been on you know all these different outlets and I'm telling the story of what's going wrong. And then this thing happens. And it's right. even more confirmation that what I'm saying is correct. So I've got two options. I can give this this document. I gave it to Congress. That's the way you do it as a whistleblower. And I was, I was a conduit for a member of the FBI to get it there. And then I said, well, I can do one of two things. I can either uh, just give it to uh, a reporter or somebody will write on it and they will get it wrong because they don't work at the FBI and they don't know what it's about. Or I can write the analysis myself from a very, very objective perspective and just say, these are the, these are the constitutional concerns. And that's what I did. So I wrote an article that was pretty long form and it was, it was very well documented. And I think it didn't get into my personal beliefs at all. It has nothing to do with that. It simply caused... The, you know, the problems are is that the FBI is getting involved in First Amendment protected speech. They have absolutely no reason to do that. They are they are forbidden from in, getting engaged in religion and picking winners and losers in the Catholic Church of all things. And so I wrote this article up and that article got picked up by Heritage and it got picked up by some others. Um, I actually went to Daily Wire originally because they've got a number of Catholic uh, hosts. And I thought, I said, man, let me just write an article for you guys and you guys could put it out on your byline, but, you know, put my name on it. And they said, well, we can't just like deputize you as a reporter. 
I was like, you mm-hmm. must be out of your minds. Uh, that's not a real thing. <laughs> like yeah, I can write right. for anybody. Yeah, so you I found a contributor or an op-ed writer or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so rather than them taking that, they said, well, just give us the document. And I said, no, because you can't explain it the way I can. Right. And so I'm going to. So I wrote it. Uh, I, I released it with a friend named uh, Tracy Beans, who's, uh, who's she's the editor at Uncovered DC. And then uh, we put it out. And of course it caught wildfire because it's, it's absurd. You've got 70 million people that are potentially in the crosshair. And then of course, probably another 70 million on top of that, that are, that are conservative voters that might be concerned about them coming for religion. And so that was one of the thermal exhaust ports on the FBI really ramped up and, and lit fire to the weaponization understanding that this is not places where the federal government has any business getting involved in. They disavowed it. We're actually finding out even now that there, there may have been real targets of this type of operation going after, you know, young people, um, going into chat rooms and trying to find people and, and try to radicalize them in the way they go after, uh, you know, Islamists and, and some other things. It's very strange and white supremacists. So they're actually using the, the classic counterterrorism playbook to target Catholics. I mean, they just picked up, they, they literally threw a name at a dartboard and said, let's go after Latin mass Catholics and let's find a fringe group. And here we go. And that's what it is literally. Wow. And so, and so Congressman Jordan now has the document and he brings it to the Judiciary Committee, correct? Yep. He put it in front of the judiciary and they basically uh, investigated it on their own. They started uh, getting their investigators and their uh, their subpoena power. They were going after Chris Ray to get the information and they eventually got some unredacted documents, uh, some redacted and some unredacted that basically showed that it wasn't just the Richmond field office that was involved. It was actually involving um, the, the Portland field office and the Los Angeles field office. So this was a nationwide thing. Although it was a novel approach, it was not without sourcing and intel people working from various different places. So that is very troubling because initially they said it's one rogue guy, but I knew that was false from the beginning because one rogue guy wrote it, a supervisor had to approve it and had to, you know, weigh in on it. And then it had to go to a chief division counsel who is the, you know, the, the mouthpiece of the, the, the special agent in charge of that field office. So that's at least three or four people involved right there, plus whoever they consulted with, which had to be others probably the Office of General Counsel as well. Yeah. And you know, whose um, statements I remember the most vividly when all of this was going on was um, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, who is himself a practicing Catholic and, um, you know, was rightly incensed by it. And how did it get over to the Senate side for uh, analysis? Uh, we send it over to Chuck Grassley's office as well. I mean, okay. one of the things you do when you're when you're doing whistleblower, there's there's two ways to go about it. You can do it the way that they want you to do it, which is you say something quietly and then you get stepped on and then you lose your job and then you quietly go off into poverty. Um, that's one route. Um, and, and I've been told that's the the 98 plus percent route. In fact, it's way higher than that. Um, most people go that route because they're rule followers. You mentioned it earlier. And actually, it's a, it's a great tie in. But people that follow the rules, follow the rules, and then they get crushed by the rules because the rules are not fair. Yeah, sometimes to our detriment, right? So- I'm a little bit more uh, unconventional, and maybe that's possibly because I went into a, a job and I wanted to do special operations, which is unconventional warfare as one of the mission sets. And looking at the problem set, I am more interested in outcomes and solutions than I am in process. I don't necessarily care about process if the outcome is better. And one of the things that I, I was trying to do when I was leaving the FBI, one of these ideas that I had was we had a um, we had a guy who had uh, allegedly raped a uh, half dozen little girls in Otero County. It might've been a little bit less than that. It might've been like three or four, but it was, it was an awful thing that he had done. And he was a, a, an elderly uh, Mexican citizen that was in the United States with legal status. And he ran the night that he was supposed to be arrested. He was going to be arrested the next day. One of the fathers had been interviewed and he went to the, the guy and said, you know, you're going to jail, whatever, and made some inflammatory remarks. The guy basically packed his stuff and left that night and went down to Mexico. And he's still in Mexico. He's managed to avoid uh, justice. Uh. Now, one of the problems is he's in his eighties now. 
And I inherited the case and I thought, well, like by the time we get this guy back and it can take upwards of two years to get what's called a PAW, a provisional arrest warrant, where we go through the State Department, we negotiate with Mexico, and then we eventually get arrest warrants where we send Mexican officers to go and grab him and bring him back to the United States to face justice. That doesn't seem like justice to me. But what I found out was is maybe, just maybe, we make a phone call and let him know that I know his daughter drove him over the the state lines and I know that he's, we cut off his, uh, his pension. He was getting social security, by the way, in Mexico from US dollars. I found out a way to cut that off. So I cut off his income. I was going to basically say all of his daughters were going to be complicit in aiding and abetting a felon, which I found some statutes we could charge them with. And we were going to make a phone call. And you call the guy up and you have it said in Spanish to him, lest he understand, because we had his phone number. And I was just going to, I was going to have him say, look, um, we're going to go after your entire family and everybody's going to get punished. All your kids are going to get punished, or you can show up at the, the bridge of the Americas in one week. You got one week to get your affairs in order. And then I start going after your kids. Um, which we should probably go after anyway, but uh, and that was not well, going to yeah, be in no, my hands. They are. If she was if she did drive him knowingly, then yes, she did aid she did. in the bed of felon. But that's an outside the box kind of attempt to try to get justice faster. That's the way that I think about things. I'm I'm more driven towards outcome. And in the same way, when I looked at this, I said we can go to Congress, we can give them these informations, we can we can kind of sit there and just see what happens, or we can get really loud about this and we can make this public because we're going to try our case in the court of public opinion first. And that's where we're going to either win or lose because the FBI is not going to do the right thing. They've already proven they won't because they've already decided to lie about it. And so that was the route that I did. And that's not what most people do. Uh, That's how I ended up doing a podcast every day because I sort of said, I need to create my own outlet for this sort of thing. And I need to make sure that this voice doesn't go away because there's a lot of evil in this world and I've seen it and I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to tell people I'm going to try to look behind the curtain. And so the FBI director was called to testify and was questioned about this. And what happened? Did he admit that Catholics no. were being targeted or did he prevaricate? Yeah, he uh, he, he sort of uh, tried to split hairs in his own way. Uh, Chris Ray is very good. Uh, I mean, he was a very expensive lawyer, became the FBI before he was the FBI director. He made $9.2 million a year as an attorney. And he took a $200,000 a year job as the FBI director. People can just make, make of that what they will. But he stepped in and he was very, I mean, I don't think he specifically lies on some occasions, although he certainly looks like he has on others, but he's very specific about the way that he phrases things. And he also does the sort of Jim Comey, not to my knowledge. And by his own volition, Chris Ray has sort of nominal leadership, uh, but it's more like he has oversight of the FBI without actually managing the day-to-day operations. Most people who's worked in the Bureau know the director's not calling the shots on a daily basis. There's a guy called the deputy director who does that. That's an actual, that's a long-term federal employee who has 20 plus years of experience, a senior executive service member. That person, uh, one of them was Andy McCabe. He became the acting director when Jim Comey was removed. So he's a fantastic human being. And the current one is a guy called Paul Abate. And Paul Abate has some pretty interesting and troubling history that we've gotten into by just nature of what I do now. But at the end of the, the end of the day, those are the people that actually have sort of the nuts and bolts operation. They're the ones who should be in front of Congress. And if anybody's ever seen him testify in front of Congress, his contempt is intense to say yeah. the least. Interesting. Uh, he, he has very high disregard, you know, a very high threshold of disregard for the members of Congress and for oversight. These people believe that they're entitled to information and nobody else can check them. And unfortunately, I think, uh, I think Chris Ray got away with saying some things that are probably wrong, but the question is, is who's going to go out and, you know, go after the director of the FBI? Who's going to arrest that person? Yeah. Not, not, not under this administration, but certainly not. Well, so I I think, you know, in large part to your courage, the phrase weaponization of the FBI has now become um, something that most Americans are familiar with. And I think you've raised for many Catholics who, you know, we've enjoyed decades now of really kind of a a Catholic mainstream life in the United States, right? I mean, we're, we're far from the days of when JFK was running and 
you know, there were uh, concerns that were expressed very publicly about whether or not the Pope would be directing the American government from Rome, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, we're far past that uh, as American Catholics. But so I think it was a real wake up call to um, to Catholics, uh, you know, writ large, uh, beyond just the Latin mass community who already, I think, feel um, like they're under attack because of the restrictions on their forms of worship, their mode of worship. So what what do you think this is going to do in the 2024 election cycle? Do you think um, this weaponization of the FBI against Catholics and then, you know, as you've pointed out, which would probably would trickle down to the larger conservative Christian community, um, do you think it's going to be uh, motivating for voters? Do you think it, can you already see it shaping? I know that Vivek Ramaswamy's mentioned it and that Ron DeSantis has mentioned it on the campaign trail. Do you see this as having traction in the next year or so? It, it's really hard to answer that. I think that's the real problem. I think the messaging has to be permanent and constant and the drumbeat has to be persistent over and over again that this is a real problem, not because you're a Catholic necessarily, but because you are a conservative or you're just a person that believes in civil liberties. That should be the real thing. The problem is, is that we need to be letting people know that this is an across the aisle problem. This is a one side uh, of the political spectrum has decided that they are going to go after a protected status in this country. And honestly, you have a right to be a white supremacist. That's something that is being lost in American dialogue. I I guess as we lost civics, we don't understand how this works. The liberals uh, in this country used to defend the rights of Nazis to go and protest. That used to be a thing that was a liberal value. Oh yeah, the ACLU did. The ACLU was a great proponent of that. I mean, unwillingly, I think, but they did it. Because it's necessary, because if free right. speech is threatened anywhere, then it's threatened everywhere. And in the of same course. way, if any religion is threatened, and and honestly, Christians are late to the game for this. And I'll say that in a big way. Catholics are certainly late to the game. Um, everybody is late to the game because they were doing this to Muslims in the early 2000s, right after 9-11. And, and some of that stuff is actually now just in the last few years going in front of the Supreme Court. And the, uh, the government has been validated that they're allowed to go and do these things like infiltrate mosques. That should be a problem for all of us. Because right. if you can go into a mosque, you can go into a synagogue. If you can go into a synagogue, you can go into a Catholic church, Latin mass or otherwise. And so these things are all troubling. They need to be front and center. What it's showing is our federal government has gotten away from the design that it was supposed to be, that it was a limited federal government, that that was the entire debate that went on as we put out the Constitution. We talked about an anti-federalist position. People don't even know what the anti-federalist federalist debate was. They wanted a strong enough federal government that was going to be able to you know, collect some taxes and not fail on its own weight the way the Articles of, Cons- of uh, Confederation did. But they also wanted something that protected us. That's what the Bill of Rights did. That was the anti-federalist um, you know, compromise that the first 10 amendments to it would come in immediately and they would say, you cannot touch free speech. You cannot touch free assembly. You cannot touch religion. And we don't have freedom. Uh, you know, we have freedom of religion in this country, right? We're supposed to be able to practice it however we wish. Right, but right. We don't have a guaranteed freedom from religion. And therefore, we should not have a federal government that is trying to pick winners and losers in a Catholic church or in the, uh, you know, the Southern Baptist Council or anywhere else. They shouldn't be picking mosques that are good and bad. That is not the federal government's job. If we could get people to just kind of agree on the values of America again, that would be the big thing. And so, yes, it has to be front and center, but I don't see everybody understanding that. That's the real sad thing. If you well, say the yeah. FBI is bad, now you're just a right-wing lunatic. Uh, and apparently I'm a right-wing lunatic. Nobody ever meets me and calls me a right-wing lunatic to my face, by the way. I talk to a lot of people. I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to people as a paramedic. I spoke to people as an FBI agent. I was a sales guy. I'm a pretty reasonable person. I'm, a, I'm kind of extreme. Don't get me wrong about a lot of things, but I'm not. Nobody ever calls me a lunatic or says that my positions at least don't have some factual basis to it. 
Right, right. Well, um, you know, just as as we're wrapping up here, how did this all change your prayer life and your wife's prayer life and the way you approach your faith? Did it intensify um, your prayer life? Did it have it, it must have had some impact. And I imagine with your, you know, your wife recently coming into the church, um, what did that look like spiritually for all of you? So as a 20 something year old man, even as somebody who was joining the military and everybody in basic training goes to, to goes to a faith tradition, whatever yours is, you, you always do, but it kind of fell off for me. It wasn't a thing. If you had told me in my twenties, my mid or my early, or even my late twenties, that I was going to be telling people about my spiritual beliefs and my uh, my thought that the, that God's hand is acting in the world in my 40s, I would have told you that you're a crazy person. That's absurd. It didn't make any sense the way that uh, I saw things. I didn't. I wasn't public about it. Like so many Catholics from the 80s, you know, where I grew up, it's something you did, but you didn't talk about. Um, it wasn't everybody's business. It was assumed yeah, it was that everybody a had a faith thing. Right. Yeah. We had a faith tradition, but it was nobody else's business. You just kept it right. to yourself. You didn't talk religion and you didn't talk politics. Now we do both of those things. And, and I do them frequently and regularly. And I talk about the fact that I think that God's plan is seen in a rearview mirror. I have moved into a significantly more aggressive Catholic faith because of the way that things have worked out for me. Most people do not get vindicated and validated in their own time. Oftentimes we do the right thing. And maybe after your death, they discover it was yeah, correct. 20 years after you die, <laughs> you get validated. Yeah. I'm seeing it happen in real time. I got removed for something that I knew was wrong when I said that they were targeting parents, but mostly what I saw was that they were forcing people to get a vaccine shot that I knew was wrong. And it was against my pro-life you know, uh, beliefs. And usually what would happen is you would just lose your job and then that would be the end of it. Uh, I sold my house. My wife and I were homeless for a little while. We ended up staying with my parents. I had a family of five living in two bedrooms of my parents' house who had a three-bedroom house. So not ideal for most people yeah, of course. Uh, and no income. And, and that's not something that you expect to go and do. And that's a challenge. Certainly. I'm, I'm like the things that I'm mad about are like watching my wife cry herself to sleep over and over and over again because of all this. And, and that never, what that did is moved us all closer to God. My, my children pray over every meal. Uh, we do it three times a day. Not everybody says grace for all three meals, but we do. Uh, we hold hands. We make it part of our tradition. It is something that we never did before that, never before any of these things. And what's really amazing to me is that my daughters have picked up on, we do a, a prayer of, of gratitude. After every time we say a blessing on the food, we discuss what we are grateful for. And my, my daughter, who's four years old, tells me she's thankful for God. She's thankful for Jesus. She's thankful for our house. She's thankful for our food. And the other day she said she was thankful for love in her life, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. My six-year-old told me that she prays for our safety and that we're being delivered from our enemies. And I said, mm -hmm. who are our enemies? And she said, it's the government. She's a six-year-old. So all of these things have shaped the way that they're looking at the world too. They're seeing a very strong spiritual war that we're all in engaged in. And if people are not awake to it now, my six-year-old is. And so I encourage people to do that too. It's like, look around your life. There's a lot of spiritual battles. The question is, are you going to sit on the sidelines and hope that it passes you by? Or are you going to step into that light and know that um, there was a thing I read uh, on my podcast just recently. It was called, when we ask for advice, uh, we, we're usually looking for accomplice. It was a, a guy named Saul, Saul Bellows who said it. And, and many times people are waiting for that accomplice before they take the action. The interesting thing I think right now, because I think that we are seeing a lot of God's hand in the world, is that if you take the action, the accomplice will follow. When I spoke up, my accomplice popped in. They were both Catholic adjacent guys, like I said, guys who went to Notre Dame and went to Marquette and are very, very strong Christians and have very strong moral beliefs. I didn't know them. I didn't know that God would put them in my path, uh, but they did. 
And so maybe now is a time when boldness is being rewarded. That's my personal experience for it. So it's made me much more aggressive about speaking about things that I would never have thought I would do. It's very strange, uh, but I've embraced it. Yeah, there's that old saying, you know, there's no no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, right? Um, But it seems like this has gone in terms of the the impact spiritually on your immediate family. What about, you mentioned at the outset of our conversation, Kyle, that your siblings aren't really practicing their faith. Has it impacted them at all? Do you talk to them about what you've, you know, um, been working on and how this has changed your life? I think it would if they did, but they don't. Um, none of my my siblings have children. They're all old enough to have children. Uh, only one of them is married, which is sort of sad. And all of them have sort of abandoned. They've all sort of embraced sort of the secular millennial type experience. They're all, you know, obviously I'm the oldest of all of them. And it's so strange to kind of see it. I, none of them seem happy to me. I, I'm, I wish that I wish them happiness. I really do. And I think they would all have been happier if they were their parents for, for whatever reason. Uh, my brother and I got in this discussion about whether or not he would have children. He said, under no circumstances, which I think is really sad. There's a big part of this younger generation, people that are in their thirties right now that even if they're married, they don't want to give up on something you know, of life. You know, the happiest thing that I've had is I've, I've we just had our fourth, you want to talk about getting radical. Our fourth child was born at home with a midwife and me, and that was it. Uh, you know, no, no anything. And, wow. and she's beautiful and she's, she's healthy. And there's so many of these things that we, we do need faith. We take her to church every, you know, but we don't, need hospitals and we don't need a lot of the things that we thought we needed. And I think so many people have embraced that secular piece. My siblings are some of them. And I, and I honestly, whenever I hear about updates on their life, because most of them won't even speak to me, I think they already know, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's rubbing their nose in something that they don't want to hear. And so I'm sad for them that way too. Yeah. Uh, well, certainly you've given us a lot to think about and pray for in uh, this podcast. And it's just been fascinating talking to you and I I really appreciate it. And please, you know, count on all of our prayers going forward for you and for your your beautiful family. I appreciate it. We always need prayers. Uh, This is a spiritual battle. So all the allies we can get, we definitely need them. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.